That will do you a bit of good. But there is a clock right here, and I, I know exactly where I'm at. It's for everybody else, Judy. That's why we had it installed. It's for all those other people who use the pulpit and can't end on time. Not for me, right? Wow. It's just cool. I just got to tell you, it's just cool. A number of years ago, we were preaching through the Gospel of John. A number of you were here for that experience. It took us several years to work our way through the Gospel of John, and we had a really delightful journey through that fourth Gospel. And you will probably remember, as we were studying the Gospel of John together, that structurally it is put together around seven signs. There are seven miracles that the Apostle John uses as a structure to build his book around. The first 11 chapters spell out those seven great signs or those seven miracles. And very self-consciously, John accumulates those seven miracles together as a structure of his book He says there at the end of the book, he does this so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. So John very specifically puts these miracles together in order to induce saving faith in those who will read and believe what he has recorded for us. It's also interesting to note that in those seven miracles that he builds his gospel around, only two of them appear in any of the other gospels. Five of them are unique to the gospel of John in terms of recounting the public ministry of Jesus Christ. So John uses two, the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus walking on the water immediately following that event, and those appear in other gospels. But the other five signs or miracles that John recounts for us are unique to his gospel. And this morning, I want to just, as we begin together, remind you of two of those very unique miracles to set the stage for our study here in Romans chapter 12. So what I want you to do is just think with me. I'm sure that you have read the Gospel of John, and I want you to just think with me through two of these miracles because they really illustrate the point that Paul is going to be making for us in Romans chapter 12 this morning. The first of those unique miracles that I want to call out to you occurs relatively early on in the ministry of Jesus, and it was at a wedding. Jesus had been invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee, which was located just a couple of miles from his hometown of Nazareth. So he had been invited, he and his disciples and his family, to this wedding celebration. And just like weddings are for us in our culture, they, are like, they were like that in the first century Jewish culture. In fact, they were more than what we experience in terms of celebration. They were a multi-day celebration in most cases. And so his family had been invited, Jesus and the disciples, to this wedding feast, this wedding celebration. Evidently, the the family that was putting on the feast had underestimated the size of the crowd that would come, and that's not so uncommon either, right? Because they had failed to provide enough wine for the festivities, and the wine had run out before the party was over. 
And so there was a real problem here that needed to be solved. This was a major social breach to run out of wine before the celebration of the wedding is over. And it puts the family in a very, very awkward place. Well, as you remember, Jesus very secretly and supernaturally intervenes on behalf of this family and he creates out of water for them more than 120 gallons of the finest wine available. In fact, the, the steward of the feast, when he tastes this wine, he compliments the groom, right? And he says, most people serve the good stuff first and the cheap stuff later when your taste buds are dulled and nobody can tell the difference. You have reserved the best for last. And then John inserts and says, this is the first sign that Jesus did in his ministry. What was the point of that sign? Well, it was really very simple. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 25 and verse 6, we won't turn there, but here the prophet Isaiah foretells the time of the coming messianic kingdom, and he says it will be a time that will be characterized by banqueting, by feasting. And part of a banquet or a feast in the first century would be wine. There was no getting around it. And so it was a time of not just any wine, but the very best wine, the prophet says. So Jesus, by turning water into the finest of wines, is giving a sign for those who have eyes to see and look on to understand specifically here his disciples, because this was a secret sign and known essentially only to them, that he is Messiah, the divine one, because only God makes wine out of water. That is a creation miracle. It is a creation order miracle. And so Jesus produces this wine. And in fact, you remember in Matthew 26 and verse 29 as well, Jesus at the Last Supper, after sipping the wine with his disciples, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until when? until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom, in the kingdom. So this whole miracle of the wine was a sign of the messianic reign to come. But I was thinking about that miracle. That's clearly what it was about. But there is more to that miracle, I think, that we can tease out of it. And that is that Jesus entered into everyday life activities. Our picture of Jesus is often one of, of a solemnity going through life and just eyes focused on the cross and thinking nothing but that. And there is certainly truth to that. And as his public ministry progressed, his eyes turned more and more to the cross in Jerusalem. He set his face like flint to go and to die. But we should not also miss the reality, the very humanity of Jesus that is revealed here in this first sign of the turning of water into wine. And that is that Jesus enters into life's general events and activities. For there is nothing like a wedding for celebration. Isn't that true? Of the unique events in life, a wedding is a time when everyone comes out, everyone celebrates, everyone is full of joy, and celebrating, and so was Jesus. And in fact, I would take it a step beyond that. And I would say that we would be mistaken if we just assumed Jesus as a dour guy going through life and failed to understand that he entered into people's lives 
and that he entered into the joyous parts of people's lives as well. Jesus is a man. Every bit as much a man as you or I, yet without sin. And so he entered into those kinds of, of life events that produce great joy. And another reason I know that, I'm not just speculating this, by the way. I know this because of the very accusation that his enemies leveled against him. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19 Jesus is speaking here, and he's speaking about what his enemies say about him. And it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Listen, there would be no way they could accuse him of being a gluttonous man and a drunkard unless he had entered into quite a number of social events that involve feasting and drinking. Isn't that true? Otherwise, that charge would have no basis at all. It would be ludicrous. So Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, we should not miss this, was characterized by entering into the very joys of the human life. He entered in, beloved, and he entered in for a purpose. The reason he entered in was that he might make himself known as Messiah, the deliverer of Israel. I also want to call your attention to the last of the seven signs that are recorded in John's Gospel, and that's recorded for us over in John chapter 11, and that is the raising of Lazarus. This is a fascinating account, John chapter 11. It's only a couple of months until the crucifixion, so this is at the very end of his public ministry, the very end of his life. And there, John records for us that Jesus made a startlingly slow trip to the village of Bethany, located just two short miles, less than two miles, outside the confines of Jerusalem. And the reason I say there was a startlingly, startlingly slow trip is because Jesus intentionally delayed his journey there. His close friend, his good friend, Lazarus, was dying, and Jesus delays hurrying back for the funeral. If you work out the chronology, you can find out that Lazarus would have been dead by the time he had got there, even if he had immediately left as soon as the messenger came. So it's not that he was cold and hard. There was, in that sense, Lazarus was going to die, but there was a bigger and greater purpose in this that led Jesus to delay his return for the funeral until four days, until four days had passed. At this point in time, Lazarus has been dead four days in the tomb, stone rolled over the way. You remember this. And Jesus says, roll away the stone. And his sister, Lazarus' sister, says, but Lord, the King James, he stinketh. That is, in that culture and climate, Decay had clearly begun to set in. This body was decomposing inside the tomb. Two times in chapter 11, in that narrative, John points out for us that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. Verses 33 and verse 38. He notes that Jesus was deeply moved in the spirit. Jesus was not careless. He was not unfeeling, unconcerned with the grief of of this circumstance, of this event. Lazarus was his close friend. 
And the sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, were close friends as well, and they were deeply grieving in the loss of their brother. And in fact, it's in this context that the shortest verse in the Bible is recorded, right? The shortest verse in the Bible, John chapter 11, verse 35, and that verse is, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Tears poured down from his eyes. The death, the sorrow, the misery of this event. We should not miss this. Here was a man who deeply felt the pain of loss. On arriving at the, at the tomb, he instructs the stone to be rolled away, right? And again, in a, in a demonstration of his, his messianic divinity, he commands Lazarus to come forth. He brings him back to life. He recreates his dead and decaying body. Lazarus comes forth from the tomb. Jesus instructs those observers to unbind him, that is, to take the funeral wraps off him, for he is bound basically head to toe. And he presents him back to his family as one alive from the dead. This miracle, by the way, is so incredible, so undeniable, so irrefutable, and so public that the Jewish leadership has no alternative at this point but to put their plans in motion to seek to kill not only Jesus, but John chapter 12, verses 10 and 11 tell us they plan to kill Lazarus as well. They need to kill the witness, the evidence of this amazing miracle. And in fact, it's this miracle, by the way, that sets up the whole triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. It is this miracle that sets the platform underneath which that great event happens. Repeatedly, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus felt compassion for people. He felt compassion for people. The prophet Isaiah writes of him and says that he was acquainted with grief. He was acquainted with grief. He entered into the sorrows of life. He moved among hurting people. He expressed compassion and care for those who were grieving, suffering. And even now, according to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, where he is ascended on high at the right hand of the Father, he acts as our sympathetic high priest entering in on our behalf because he can be touched by the feelings of our infirmities. Jesus had the ability to enter in to the joyous occasions of life and to enter into the most profound and sorrowful occasions of life. Beloved, since we are being transformed, according to Romans chapter, 12, or chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, into the very image of Jesus Christ, then what kind of people are we to be? That's the question that lies underneath where we are going this morning. What kind of people are we to be? Through the indwelling Spirit of God, we are being transformed into conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Romans chapter 12 is what it looks like. So turn your Bibles here to Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1136. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. 
As we examine this verse together this morning, what I want us to see are two sides of gospel-produced sympathy so that we will be moved to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's really that simple. This whole section, again, just to remind you of Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, are a whole series of what I'm calling ingredients for the recipe of divine love. What does Christ-produced, Holy Spirit-empowered love look like in the life of a believer, one who has been transformed in their thinking, one who is being changed day by day into the likeness of Jesus Christ? What does it look like? And so we arrive here at this ingredient, sympathy or sympathetic Christ-produced love is a sympathetic kind of love. It is a sympathetic love. And in a very simple statement here, verse 15 of Romans 12, Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The Greek is not complicated or difficult here at all. It says exactly in Greek what it says in English. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who who weep. It is very straightforward. It is very direct. But it's also very, very profound and challenging. Some commentators, by the way, think that this is being spoken only within the context of the local church. So from their interpretation, they would say that we are to rejoice with fellow believers here in the body at Foothill who are rejoicing, and we are to weep with fellow believers here in the body at Foothill who are weeping. Others say, no, 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 no. He has made a transition here in verse 14 to moving outside of the body. That is that when he says in verse 14 that to bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not, believers don't persecute you, unbelievers persecute you. So he's making a transition. He's now talking about those outside the church. We are to rejoice with those outside the church who are rejoicing. We're to weep with those outside the church who are weeping. So which is it? Is it those inside the church or is it those outside the church? The answer is yes. I think we do the passage the most justice by opening our arms as wide as we can and gathering everyone in. And saying that this, this qualification of biblical love is applicable not just between us who have the Spirit of God residing within us, but it is applicable to those outside who do not to our friends, to our family members, to our co-workers, to our neighbors, in an ever-increasing extension of our arms to all mankind, all men and women who bear the image of God. Certainly for the believer, there is the, the expression of spirit-produced brotherhood. We cannot deny that. 1 Corinthians 12 and 26, Paul says, if one member suffers all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And so there's clear that within the body there is this kind of, of unity that causes us to be involved in one another's lives, for sure. But I think it's bigger, as I say. I think the expression of love, and I look to, I look to the person of Jesus Christ for this. If the love that is being produced by His Spirit in us is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ, then our love should be looking like His love. 
And when I look at the love of Christ in the Gospels, I see it wide and broad and going to all kinds of people in all kinds of contexts, not just to those who respond to Him in faith, but many, many people who turn on their heel and walk away. So I think the love that he is talking about expressing here is a love that goes to all mankind regardless. A love that we hope and pray might eventuate an opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they might believe and be saved. So let's just look here at the two sides of gospel-produced sympathy. The first, very simple, gospel-produced sympathy rejoices with people. Gospel-produced sympathy rejoices with people. Verse 15, the first part, rejoice with those who rejoice. Rejoice with those who rejoice. What do people rejoice over? What are the kind of things that cause people to rejoice? Well, yesterday, I had the privilege of conducting a wedding ceremony. Weddings, for sure, are that which people rejoice over. Isn't that true? It doesn't matter whether they know Christ in a saving way or not. Weddings are a time of great celebration. They're a tremendous time for people to get together and to just have a really great time, to be filled with joy in their hearts. So weddings, to be sure, are something that people rejoice over. The birth of a baby. When a baby comes into a family, it's a time of incredible rejoicing. People are happy when they have children. And we can and should be happy with them and for them. A new job. People get a new job, they're happy about that, aren't they? Wow, I call you up on the phone. Hey, I got this new job. Been waiting so long, I've got this job. Enter in. Rejoice with them in, in what God has provided. Oh, people rejoice about having buying a new home. Their eyes light up. Wow, I got a home. A new car. Their child's graduation from high school, graduation from college. I mean, they send out invitations everywhere, right? Come watch my child march with thousands of others. <laughs> Sit in the hot sun. Just so we can hear their name read off. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing time in a family. Particularly, by the way, if you grew up in a family that, that college is not part of the fabric of that family, part of that tradition, if you're the first to graduate from college in your family and, and maybe ever, it's an incredible time of rejoicing. It's an important time in the lives of people. And beloved, Paul would have us, Christ would have us enter into these times to rejoice with people when they're rejoicing. Maybe a family party or a reunion is another time of great rejoicing. Or here's one, leading someone to Christ. Have you ever had the amazing privilege of being used of God to lead a sinner to faith in Jesus Christ? Wow! The angels in heaven are rejoicing, the Scripture tells us, and we rejoice too. We rejoice too. It's an amazing experience to enter into. And when someone has had that privilege, and they tell you about it, and their eyes are, you know, they're, they're lit up. And we go, yeah. 
Yeah, that was okay. No! Enter in with them. Rejoice with them. If God has given good gifts, let's acknowledge it. Let's celebrate it. Let's get involved in people's lives. Now, a question that I think comes up in many people's minds is this. Can we rejoice over these events if they involve sin? What if there's sin involved? Then what do we do? Can we rejoice? The answer, I think, is yes and no. Yes and no. We must never, ever rejoice in unrighteousness, ever. God is diametrically opposed in his character to unrighteousness, to sin. And so there is no sense in which we can rejoice in an act of sin. Let's be really clear about that. However, at the same time, if we are willing to look a little deeper, maybe to put aside some of the natural revulsion that might come because of the sin involved, we might find something we still can enter into with our neighbors and rejoice with family members and rejoice. Let me illustrate this for you in a couple of examples. Can we rejoice in a baby born out of wedlock? Can we rejoice in that event? Do we find great joy that a child has been brought into the world outside of the will of God in this way? In direct opposition to His Word? No. No. But we can and should and must rejoice that a life has been brought into the world. And beloved, that this couple could have aborted that child. They could have aborted that child. And so even in the midst of a situation like that, and maybe it's a family situation or something, or a close relative or, or someone at work or something like that, yes, there's something you can enter into and rejoice with them. They could have killed that child, and they didn't. And in that, we do rejoice in the moment. Or how about another one? Do we attend a family reunion in which an openly professing and practicing homosexual family member will be in attendance? Or do we boycott the family reunion? Do we say, the Bible contemns homosexuality, we're not going to be part of the family reunion, we're just going to cut ourselves off from it. Sin. And it is sin. But what an opportunity. What an opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ with someone who has been bent and twisted by the effect of sin. Huh? Do we rejoice in unrighteousness? Do we rejoice in unrighteousness? May Anita, may it never be. But can we enter in and rejoice with our neighbors and our family members and our and our work associates? Yes, we can, and we should, and we must. We must. That takes us to the, the second part of gospel-produced sympathy. The second aspect of it is the gospel-produced sympathy weeps with people. It weeps with people. What do people weep over? What do people weep over? 
Death of a loved one certainly comes to mind, right? It doesn't matter who we are, whether we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ or not, the death of a loved one brings immense pain and sorrow into our heart, and it's the time of weeping. People weep over the news of a devastating disease that has come upon them. They go to the doctor and they find out they have cancer. And they weep. Loss of a job. They go to work one day and Friday everything's fine. They go in on Monday morning and no job anymore. Sorry, your services aren't needed any longer. We're downsizing, we're changing direction, whatever it is. The economy's bad. I've seen grown men weep with the news of a loss of a job. I've seen the tears pour down their face. Maybe a financial setback or ruin. Perhaps through circumstances beyond their control. Perhaps as a result of their own ill-advised decisions. Financial ruin, financial setback. I've seen people weep. Unsaved family members. It causes people to weep. Weep, verse 15, with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. Feel the pain that they're feeling. Enter into life with them. How do we do that? How do we enter into the experiences of another person? How do we truly rejoice or truly weep with those who are joyous or sad? I was thinking a lot about that this week. And there are some hindrances that came to my mind, some, some hindrances to sympathetic love. These hindrances create a barrier or a fence or a wall that keep us back from people so that we don't feel the joy that they feel and we don't feel the pain that they feel. Let me just suggest a few of them to you. The first hindrance, and really I had two hindrances in some subcategories, so I'll give you the, the first hindrance, and that is self-interest. Self-interest. I think this one's huge. Self-interest. Self-interest meaning that we are so preoccupied with what's going on in our own lives that we really care little for anyone else. We have no time or energy for anyone else. We, we wall off everyone else and have our own little world we live in. This self-interest can really take a number of different forms. One is Christian monasticism. Christian monasticism. The monastics, it was a time period in the early church when they cut themselves off from the world. The world was defiled. The world is sinful. The world is, is ruined. And so the monastics separated themselves from the world that they would not be defiled by contact with the world. They did not want to be around sinners because they felt if they were near sinners, the sin stuff might rub off on them. Of course, what they foolishly failed to recognize was that sin... Evil comes from where? It comes out of the heart. And so you can run off by yourself into the wilderness, climb up on a pole, and spend the rest of your life, and you will not escape wickedness. It comes from within. 
But there's a certain element within the, within the evangelical church of what I call Christian monastics. That is, their orientation is to stay away from sinful people. So they shop only with people that have ichthus on their business card. I only shop with Christians. I only talk to Christians. I only hang around Christians. I did not want to be near anybody who has that sin problem because it might get on me. It might get on my children. It might infect them. So I want to keep them away. Now, people don't say it that crudely, of course. Well, most people don't. But, but it's going on in the back of their mind. It's running in the back of their mind. Christian monasticism, which is really just a manifestation of self-interest. I'm so interested about me and my family that I want to keep everybody else away. Another way that self-interest can manifest itself is what I call the veneration of the family. The veneration of the family. This is kind of an interesting little pathology among us. Certainly a strong Christian family with a, with a loving marriage, husband and wife, fulfilling their responsibilities one to another under the, under the providence of God and children who are, who are obedient and submissive and, and outwardly godly in their behavior. These are good and wonderful things, and we should rejoice in that. But it can go over the top. It can go over the top where all the time, all the energy, all the focus, all the disciple-making is poured into this little core family until it becomes, if I dare say so, an idol. It becomes an idol. Spiritual success is measured on this little orb called family. Family. You know, beloved, wonderful as Christian families are, and they are, they are not the main reason for our existence. You know that, don't you? The main reason for our existence here is not that we have a little teeny Christian family where everybody is in order together. Our life purposes are much bigger than that. Much bigger. Veneration of family. Here's another manifestation of self-interest. Materialism. Materialism. It's pretty simple. When I've got my hands full of stuff, it's pretty hard to reach out to you. Right? I'm, I've got both arms like this holding on to all my stuff. How can I possibly extend my hand to help you? If I do that, I've got to drop some of my stuff. Like a squirrel with too many nuts. I mean, seriously. You see a squirrel, right? They gather one, then they grab, the, you know, they got them like this, and then they see one more. And then they have this predicament. Do I go for the, go for the nut? Because if I've got to pick this one, I've got to drop these. That's the way we are. If I'm going to extend my hand to you, I've got to let go of some of the junk that my arms are wrapped around. You know, the more we have, the more it has us. You do know that, don't you? The more you have, the more it has you. Nobody, nobody steals from people who don't have anything. People go after, you know, that's what I feel really great about my car, by the way. I just want to establish this fact. It got noticed twice in the past week. I have a 20-year-old car. And so I always park it right next to the most expensive automobile I can find. <laughs> I parked it next to a Cadillac Escalade yesterday in the parking lot. Carol said, are, are, you, are you okay with that? And I said, sure. I said, I'll leave the doors unlocked and the engine running. I'm in good shape. 
nobody is going to take this car when they can have that one. So there's a real benefit, a real benefit here. So materialism, it can, it can capture our soul. Jealousy. It's another way self-interest manifests itself is jealousy. Simply put, it's, it's difficult to rejoice with someone who prospers when our needs are greater than theirs. I mean, that's just the truth of it. We, some, we see someone, maybe a coworker or something, who gets a promotion or, or whatever, and they're prospering, and our needs are greater than theirs, and they go unmet. It's hard to rejoice in that. It's hard to fight off the feelings of jealousy. I deserve that, and they got it. Or how about when the blessing comes at your expense? You're the one who works hard, and they're the one who gets the recognition. Can you rejoice with them in that circumstance? Can you really rejoice with them in those circumstances? I mean, would you rejoice if your coworker got a promotion that leaves you now having to do your job and half of theirs too? Would you rejoice in that? Or would you grumble inside? Here's another manifestation of self-interest. I call it superficiality. Superficiality. Or maybe another way to say it is the Romans 828 syndrome. The Romans 828 syndrome. You go to somebody who's grieving and suffering and you say, cheer up! You know, God works all things together for good. Thank you. Thank you for telling me that. That helped me so much in my moment of great grief. Beloved, Romans 8.28 is absolutely true, and it's something that we all must get our theological minds around and our hearts engaged with and believe. And it is the platform for by which we move through life and its difficulties. But there's a time and a place to bring that truth to bear. And in the moment of great grief is not the time nor the place. Premature and unfeeling attempts to cheer people up. That's the Romans 8.28 syndrome. And it's really a manifestation of self-interest, which says, I know you're hurting, and I know that I need to care about you, but I'm extremely busy, so I'm going to care about you on a compressed schedule, which is I'm just going to come to you, I'm going to give you Romans 8.28, tell you to cheer up, and then I'm going to move on to something else. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes emotional involvement to truly grieve with someone who's grieving. By the way, the writer of Proverbs, Proverbs 25 and verse 20, says, Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar on soda. Try that again. Like vinegar, the R belongs there. On soda, no R there. Yeah, I know. I hate that when that happens. <laughs> like vinegar on soda is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. He who sings songs to a troubled heart. It makes it worse. Taking your shirt off on a cold day, it makes it worse. Combining vinegar with soda makes it worse. Singing songs to a troubled heart in the wrong place and in the wrong time make it worse. Make it worse. Self-interest, 
It's a huge hindrance to fulfilling this statement in Romans 12, 15 about rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. But there's one more. Burnout. Burnout. For those who do enter in, there is this danger of burnout. Sympathetic love produces involvement in people's lives. It brings your heart in contact with their heart. Their griefs become your griefs. Their joys become your joys. And it can be exhausting. It can be exhausting. Sometimes we just want to quit and run away from it all. Get away. Go to the mountains. Go to the beach. Get away from people. It's so heavy. That reminds me of a little story. It goes like this. A businessman and his wife were busy to the point of exhaustion. They were committed to each other, their family, their church, their work, their friends. But needing a break, they escaped for a few days of relaxation at an oceanfront hotel. One night, a violent storm lashed the beach and sent massive breakers thundering against the shore. The man lay in his bed listening and thinking about his own stormy life of never-ending demands and pressures. The wind finally died down, and and shortly before daybreak, the man slipped out of bed and, and went out and decided to go for a walk along the beach to see what damage the storm had done. As he strolled, he saw that the beach was covered with starfish that had been thrown up onto the shore by the massive waves produced by the storm. Well, once the morning sun came out and burned through the fog, all of those starfish, of course, would die. They'd dry out and die. Suddenly, the man saw a very interesting sight. Looking down the beach, he he saw a young boy who had had also noticed the plight of the starfish scattered all over the beach. This boy was bending over and picking them up one by one and throwing him back out into the ocean. What are you doing that for? The man asked as the boy approached closer. Can't you see that that one person will never be able to make a difference among all of these starfish washed up on the shore here? Yes, that's true, the boy says. He bent over and picked up another starfish and threw it out into the water. As he was watching it sink below the waves, he looked back at the man and he smiled and he said, but it sure made a difference for that one. And beloved, that's, that's really what it is. See, we can't make a difference for everyone. We can't weep with everyone who weeps. We can't rejoice with everyone who rejoices, but we all have circles of influence. We all have relationships. You know people that I don't know. I know people that you don't know. And so it's as we operate in those those relationship circles that we can rejoice and we can weep and we can make a difference. We can make a difference to one or two that the Lord brings across our paths. I mean, simply put, If we are to love the way Jesus Christ loves, then we must become involved in people's lives. 
It's really that simple. We must become involved in people's lives. And we cannot manufacture this kind of otherworldly sympathy. This is not something that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do. This kind of sympathy, this otherworldly sympathy, is a gospel-produced, spirit-empowered change in our hearts. It is the outworking and result of a transformed mind, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Let's not ever forget This part of Romans chapter 12 is not some new iteration of the law that comes down upon us and rests like a millstone on our shoulders. This is a description of what a spirit-empowered, transformed life looks like. We will never, ever achieve if we seek it in our own strength and power. It is only as the Spirit of God works in and through us. He empowers us. He transforms us. He has delivered us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And day by day, moment by moment, He is delivering us from the very presence of sin itself. As we work in love to reach out to others. It is the gospel that has delivered me. It is the gospel that has delivered you. And if you are here this morning without... Christ, it is the gospel that can deliver you. We're not talking about a religion of external self-effort. We are talking about declaring spiritual bankruptcy, of acknowledging, I do not love like this. This is not natural to me. This is not what I want to do. In fact, what I want is to love myself. But I desperately need God to change me. I need my guilt to be placed on Jesus Christ and punished on His cross. I need His resurrected life. I need the power of the life to come to reside within me. And the Scripture tells me that it is available to me if I will call out to Him in faith. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive me for Jesus' sake. The Scripture tells you that if you will call out in faith on Him, God will save you and begin the process of transforming your life. Beloved, the Gospel is for everyone. It is for everyone. It is for those who even at this moment do not know Jesus Christ, and it is for us who do. We will always and forevermore be sinners saved by grace. Will you call out to Him today? Will you call out to Him? Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we recognize how far short we fall of the divine standard. That we do not love like Jesus loved. That our lives are a very mixed and confused mess of conflicting motives and desires. That our best aspirations are 
to live for your glory, but our Father, we so frequently fall short and fail. And so even now in this place, we rush and flee to the cross of Jesus Christ to cling to that which gives life. Oh Lord, please transform us. Please deliver us from self-interest or burnout. Please enable us to truly enter in to the joys and sorrows of our fellow man. And let us do so because we have been transformed and we have a most amazing message to speak. Like one beggar telling another where to find bread, we have found relief for our soul and we want everyone to find what we have found. May we do this, not for our glory, but for Christ alone.